welcome to episode 182 of the Cricket Hell Weekly. It's been a crazy week for us, it's been a crazy week for cricket. Ralph, it started off, um, well it started off for me in Northampton, but it actually started off for you in London, didn't it? In the House of Parliament, where, what the government is. <laughs> yes, it did. I was very um, privileged to be one of four academics invited to give oral evidence to the Parliamentary Select Committee um, for Culture, Media and Sport, who are currently conducting an inquiry into women's sport. So the way that um, the English, uh, or sorry, UK government works um, in Westminster is that they have these parliamentary committees that are kind of nominally sort of independent of government um, and are made up of cross-party selection of MPs um, and they each have different um, kind of areas in which they discuss things, they, they hold inquiries, they take evidence and then they make recommendations to the government about um, you know, what they think the next policy should be on this particular topic. Um, so they, they issue a public call for evidence and then they invite particular witnesses. So I was one of, as I say, one of four academics invited to give evidence to their inquiry into women's sport which is quite broad, um, but has kind of been, was kind of sparked off by the success of the England women's football team, the Lionesses, last summer in the women's Euros. Um, and sort of part of the inquiry is about what does women's football do that other sports should do better, but also just generally how do we grow women's sport and how do we deal with kind of the um, continued sexism and misogyny that exists around the arena of sport. Um, so there's some really big questions in there. So my expertise, um, as if viewers didn't know this, is kind of in relation to governance um, and how we should be running sport, basically, and running women's sport going forward. And I, I think that I've spoken about this quite a few times on the podcast, but essentially my argument to the Select Committee is that women's sport should be run separately to men's sport, that um, we've had this kind of experiment for a few decades where there's been a forced coming together of women's and men's sports to be run by the same organisations, that those organisations have remained heavily male-dominated, um, have remained um, very much um, in a situation where they prioritise men's sport and that women's sport doesn't get a look in, and that's the case in football, cricket and numerous other sports as well. Um, and so that was the uh, point that I was making to the committee. I have no idea how they're going to respond to it. What will happen now is that they will go away um, and they will um, look at all of the evidence that's been submitted and then they will um, come up with a final report in which they will make some recommendations to the government. And what were the kind of, what were the kind of specific points that you, yeah. that you were making? I mean, these, these are, we should stress, applicable more widely to sport than just cricket. Yeah. But obviously cricket is your personal focus. So what kind of points were you making? What were you telling them they need to do? <laughs> well, I was talking about the um, the continued kind of male dominance of positions of in um, in leadership um, and in coaching. Um, we started off by talking about the case with the Spanish FA and I was just, and there was a little bit of a kind of sort of um, almost like a, oh, that happened in Spain, but you know, could that actually ever happen here? because you know our England women's football team are really well respected and I was a bit like well it could happen anywhere because when you've got men running the show then unfortunately often they don't have the respect for sports women that they should have um, and this is a really a failure of governance and a failure of um, any of the current policies to promote enough women to the top levels of leadership in sport so it was those kind of those kind of points that I was trying to make there was also a discussion about broadcasting um, and broadcasting rights um, and so I kind of made the point that actually um, English cricket has really um, shot itself in the foot by being on um, only on Sky television 
um, for the last couple of decades and therefore you know we've seen a concomitant kind of decline in participation um, and that wouldn't it be nice for the women to be able to decide where they want their um, where they want women's cricket to be shown but at the moment all of those decisions are being made by the same organisation the ECB and the decisions are being made by men at the top. Because of course broadcasting rights are a very delicate balance aren't yeah. they Raph? because obviously if you put it on Sky or whoever's prepared to pay the most money they obviously want exclusivity ideally you'll get the most money by giving somebody like yeah. Sky or um, you know Big Up Sports or whoever they are an exclusive deal but you know, then you'll wind up potentially in a, you know, a corner of that broadcast landscape where people can't just stumble upon yeah. it. So you've had, and that balance might well be different for men's and women's cricket, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, and I think that actually with women's cricket, we've got a real opportunity. If we could say we're going to have all women's cricket in England on the BBC, then we become the most visible cricket in the country. And that's, you know... That's not to be sniffed at. That's a real market opportunity. But unfortunately, the ECB is still insisting that we bundle in all the rights together, um, and so we can't we can't take that opportunity. And even if they did unbundle them, it's still the ECB who are deciding what the ultimate outcome is. So, you know, these are some of the points I was making. I think there was a little bit of scepticism. Certainly, and um, one MP said, "How can sports financially afford to do this?" And I said, "Well, one of the points I want to make is that actually the money that." is meant to be going to women's sport at the moment is not necessarily getting there because um, it's going to the governing bodies or it's going to the clubs um, who are all kind of you know run and organised by men and I know of examples in both football and cricket where um, the, the money that is supposedly been ring-fenced for women's sport has not reached women's sport. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, not directly a women's sport issue. We've seen it just this week, haven't we, with Middlesex County yeah. Cricket Club, where they were given funds for uh, for specific uses and they used those funds quietly to, to fund their men's county team <laughs> because they were like, nobody's going to notice if we do this, lads. Yeah. Um, and, of course, somebody did notice and, you know, they've had a lot of comeback and, yeah. you know, they've been quite fine right. for it. and. Yeah, quite right. But that just goes to show if you give people a load of money and don't audit where it's going, yeah. then they're going to go, you know what, maybe we don't have to give all this money. Maybe we can use some of that money to pay our men's team more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the points that one of the other academics on the committee actually was making, Dr Beth Clarkson, she was saying that at the moment, for example, with women's Super League teams in women's football, they don't have um, kind of publicly available accounts. So it's very difficult to make... Um, assumptions and assessments about profitability, about sustainability, about where the money's actually going to, um, making comparisons with any men's teams because we just don't have that information. So that was um, one of her points and I think that was a really strong point. Um, the, other, the other thing that I was trying to say to the committee is that actually what we've got is a situation at the moment where all of the grounds in the country, whether that be cricket, football, um, most sports, they're owned by men and they're run by men and the allocation of matches is done um, on, a, on a basis that massively favours men. And it's really difficult if you're women to get um, access to these pitches. Now, that's that's an interesting point, Raph. Topical, topical. <laughs> just five days later, we've actually yeah. had some controversy about allocations of grounds, haven't we? Yeah. Because um, let's move on now towards the RHF trophy, which is yeah. going to be our next topic to talk about. Um, and in the RHF Trophy, we'll, we'll come back to it in a little bit about the, the actual cricket, but Blaze are playing in the Eliminator, the sort of one semi-final. They're supposed to be the home team, but what happened, Raph? Well, yeah, because the way it works is they finish second and beneath them in third place um, is a, a, the Stars. 
Um, and second place is meant to gain you an advantage of being able to play at home. Now, the Blazers' home ground is obviously Trent Bridge. Um, but we believe, it hasn't been officially announced yet, but Blaze have, put, um, have sent out a reply tweet that suggests that the Eliminator is going to be played at Beckenham, which is obviously the home ground of the Stars. So they've had to cede their home advantage because Trent Bridge is apparently unavailable. Now, I initially thought that it was unavailable because they were playing some men's county cricket there. That would be the obvious thing. And there is a round of men's county championship matches yes, going on at that time. But, but... lots are away. So what is actually happening? Well, next Saturday, England v New Zealand men are playing a one-day international. Now, what does that have to do with Thursday, I hear you ask? Well, obviously, because they're men, they have to be in situ for several days at the ground, able to train. Now, so essentially what we're saying here is that the Blaze cannot play a home fixture at what's meant to be their home ground because the men need to do some training. That's absolutely appalling. And there's a good chance that the actual training the men do will be very limited anyway because it will be training for the press because that's what they do. And so it will be just some limited nets and it won't, you know, it's not like they're going to have, you know, a full, unlike they're a full blown, you know, session, it wouldn't make any difference for the men to go to a club ground to do their you know training what, on that particular day. Send them, I don't care, send them to the park across the road with their little cones and they can have a nice run up and down and do whatever they want, but get off the ground so that the women can play a match, okay? This is absolutely unacceptable that this is still happening. And it's made me really cross. One of the things that I said, just to finish off the point about Parliament, was I actually, one of my key recommendations is women need to have their own grounds, they need to have their own facilities, and they probably need to build some more because currently they're bursting at the seams and there, there isn't enough um, facilities even for the existing men's team so the women get bumped down to the bottom. But it's about ownership. It's about the difference between being a tenant at somebody else's ground that knots have owned for hundreds of years, however long it is, um, and you know, so you're being a tenant at somebody else's ground versus actually feeling proper ownership of your own ground. And no women have that at the moment. It's really frustrating. And, and the, yeah, the thing with this, the, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy has just exemplified it for me. Um, it, it's just, it just makes me really angry. And the other thing is that unfortunately, um, it does seem that Blaze have been really a bit screwed over by um, their move to Knotts this season. Knotts kind of, you know, obviously made a big case and said, we really want the women to come here. We want them to move away from Loughborough, where they've been, um, and where who've had a, a women's team and been, success, like, been successful in terms of facilities, because that's a beautiful training facility and pitch at Loughborough. And we want them to come over to Trent Bridge and we really care about them and we're going to support them. And the what's re- remind happened- me, Remind me had, where they played their last couple of games well, at Loughborough? Exactly. They've had to move back to Loughborough because those games have been moved from Welbeck because Welbeck earlier in the season um, prioritised a men's club game and meant that the the pitch, when it came to the Blaze playing on it, was not fit to play. So even though it was beautiful sunshine, that match was washed out. Okay, we're now in a situation where apparently Knotts haven't even bothered to book a ground for a match that's been scheduled in the calendar for months and months and months. Okay, they didn't know they were going to play, but presumably the reason why um, it's now being moved to Beckenham, we think, is because um, the Stars did book Beckenham because they thought, oh, it's possible we might end up playing in the semi-final. Yeah, and it's, it's, it is possible to manage these things, right? There's a really yeah. interesting case what, which happened um, in women's football at the end, towards the end of the last football season where Arsenal Football Club were, getting, were in the position where they might qualify for the semi-finals mm. of the Champions League. It was going to be a huge match, but they might or they might not. 
So they played the match. Almost as soon as the match finished, tweets went out. The Arsenal website changed. Buy tickets now for yeah. the Women's Champions League semi-final hosted at the Emirates Stadium. Everything was ready. You could click and buy tickets instantly. That didn't just happen. They put loads of work into to creating those marketing materials, ensuring that the Emirates Stadium was available, ensuring that you have to, for things like big football matches, the Emirates Stadium, you have, to, you have to negotiate with the Metropolitan Police, for example, to ensure that there's no other big events going on in that bit of North London, which are going to make it problematic for the police. You know, there's, there's so much that you have to do to put in place. And yet they did it. They put that, yeah. and that might not have even happened. Just like this, it might have, Arsenal might have lost that match, and then they wouldn't have been in that semi-final. It would have been kind of wasted work. But they put that work in. That's what's possible to do yeah. for your women's team, yeah. and that's what Blaze didn't do, and that's what's disappointing. Yeah, it is, and it's disappointing for the fans. Actually, it's really disrespectful for your fan base. Okay, we're still at a point where these teams are relatively new, most of them, and they've got relatively small fan bases. Small number of hardcore, but, hardcore but, fans. So let's make them feel really yeah, bad. Exactly. Exactly. Um, how is this a way to promote um, supporters or, you know, to promote your kind of group of supporters in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy by actually just disrespecting them in this way and saying, oh, we haven't bothered to book a ground. So if you want to go to what's meant to be a home semi-final, you're going to have to travel hundreds of miles down south. Um, and honestly, the ECB should be seriously thinking about sanctions um, against well, I'm guessing they it would be against Knott's actually, because it, it feels a little bit unfortunate that the Blaze, the people who are running the Blaze, are going to get caught up in the crossfire of this, um, when actually they don't have the authority. And again, it's a problem with the way the regions have been set up, um, because somebody, some people are saying to me on Twitter, oh, well, the women don't own the ground, Knott's own the ground. And it's like, yeah, yeah. that's the point. <laughs> we need our own ground. But at the moment, we have to be, we have to be um, content to... Be, accept the crumbs off your table. And so the ECB should be looking to sanction knots actually, because they haven't properly looked after the blaze. They haven't booked the ground. Um, and if this, if, if this is not, this to, is be, if this is not to be repeated, um, then there needs to be an actual sanction in place. So that's what I would say to the ECB. Were they watching this? Which maybe they maybe they aren't. I don't know. Um, I'm sure Claire Connor looks on first. She gets up on a Sunday morning, and the yeah. first thing she does it's the it's the low light of her week. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the um, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Sid because um, the the group stages have now wrapped up. We were at the one of the final matches yesterday, which was that virtual quarter final between the Stars and um, the Sparks at Edgbaston, and we were doing some commentary. So if anyone tuned in, hopefully we weren't too awful. <laughs> we had a great time doing that with Claire Jenkins, um, who's the the senior commentator, and um, you know showed showed us the rope. So we feel like we're getting told you off when you said a rude word. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we feel like we're getting a little bit more the hang of it now. But um, it, it turned out to be a little bit of a one sided game, didn't it? In the end, unfortunately for the Sparks. Yeah, I was actually a little bit surprised because I thought the Sparks were going to be quite fun. I thought the Sparks were going to win that match. Um, yeah. I, I just kind of felt in my bones that they had a little bit of a home advantage and I thought, you know, they, they've got a good team. They, they can do this. Um, they didn't quite do it. To be fair, you know, they, they've still had an, ended up with a good season. I think yeah. they'll, they'll go, they'll look back on their season and go, you know, we came really close. We nearly made that that semi-final. We didn't quite do it. The players didn't look too disappointed coming off coming off the field because, uh, you know... I think, I think they looked more disappointed than... They looked more disappointed than the Stars did. But Well, this, yeah, obviously the Stars um, have had an up-and-down season but have somehow managed to finish in third place. Um, it's, it's an interesting one in terms of the season as a whole, actually, because um, it feels like we've had sort of 
the, the RHF before the 100 and the RHF after the 100. And it's been these two different blocks and different teams have kind of experienced those two different blocks differently. And actually the Blaze were very much the front runners for a while and looked like they were going to finish definitely top like of the table. They were going to run away with it. They, yeah. were, they were massive um, there. And have point. kind of been then pulled back because Vipers have had a resurgence after the break. Um, yeah, it's really interesting with the, this. I was going to say about the Sparks also having had a really um, kind of exciting first half of the RHF. They actually beat the Vipers and were looking really good and then have kind of actually tailed off a little bit towards the end. Yeah, it's interesting because people talk about 50 over cricket and 50 over cricket having mm. the time for narratives to develop and for you to have a good phase and a bad phase within the game. We've, we shouldn't forget that we've doubled the length of the season this year. So rather than seven games in the regular season, there's 14 games, everyone's playing home and away. That's time for narratives to develop as well. So, you know, the Vipers at one point were back in fifth. You know, they've now, you know, scooted up to the top of the table yeah. and in fact overtook Blaze at the kind of very last minute yeah. um, with, you know, a, a big win there. So they ended up level on points with Blaze um, and they were ahead of them on net run rate. Um, and that's what put Blaze in this situation of yeah. needing to play that eliminator, which at one stage it looked like they were guaranteed that spot in the final. Um, so it's been a fantastic season, I think. And, you know, we've, the other big story has been the kind of the run that Sunrisers have gone yeah. on at the end. Sunrisers in Gracie we trust. <laughs> <And> <laughs> four on the bounce, Sid. Four out of four as captain. How long can she maintain this record? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, you know, she's going to maintain it for several more months. Exactly. Not going to play until exactly. the beginning of next year again. <laughs> um, you know, and it, there's been a little bit of talk, and certainly Sunrise have gone, oh, you know, if only we could, like, adjust mentally. You know, we feel we've got the players. You know, we've got the game. Yeah. It's just, like, something is preventing us from from getting over that hurdle and being able to win kind of... They've won the odd game, but, you know, I'm not sure they didn't won two consecutive games previously. They certainly so, haven't no. won three, and absolutely not four. Um, so, you know, well... What's the change been, Raph? What's the what's the one change that's really happened in the Sunrise? It is Grace Scrivens has been made captain. Grace Scrivens bingo! <laughs> yeah, Grace Scrivens bingo has officially replaced Alice Kelsey bingo on the cricket hole. It has, it has. Um, but, you know, I mean, we, we've been banging on about this and we said, you know, virtually a year ago that she yeah. should have been made captain for this, this season. Um, you know, and after having a couple of different captains this, this season, they've finally gone, OK, you know, we know that she's only 19, but she's clearly the best candidate. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone that plays with her ultimately ends up seeing that. Everyone that watches her captain ends up seeing that. And, you know, it's just totally different, you know, approach to mm. kind of owning that team and, and, and getting people to believe. That's what, she's, that's what great leaders are capable of doing. And I think that's what people are missing. That's the bit that people are missing. They don't understand just how good she is. How much of a sort of she's like a almost like a Napoleon figure, and these people just don't come along very often in in any sport. In you know, and you know this is this is way above the levels kind of you know, the Ben Stokes's of this world. Ben Stokes leads by you know a great example and a fantastic cricketer, but he's not a leader like Grace Scrivens is. Grace Scrivens is the kind of leader that will make people follow to the end of the earth, and they're doing that. It was a fantastic really telling moment at the end of the third game where we, which we saw only because somebody tweeted a photograph of it where before they left the pitch she pulled all the players together and got them back into the huddle and she gave them a speech now i'm no idea what she said but if you look at that photo which you can see on twitter they're all absolutely wrapped they're all focused on her and you can see her there talking and she's talking like individually to every single one of them at once the number of people that can do that is just tiny i've I, in my entire work life i've never really encountered anybody like that it's fantastic, and that's the reason that Sunrise has won four games on the bounce. I feel like you've waxed lyrical about her. 
for quite a few minutes there, Sid. So <laughs> we're, I'm sure that that won't be the, the last time that you do so. Um, I guess we have to be careful not to build her up too much. <laughs> But you obviously don't think that that's a concern. Um, I think, yeah, the, the credit to all of the other players in the Sunrisers as well, because it is a team yeah, game. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, she couldn't do it without them. But I think that her leadership is really crucial to get to persuading those players to believe they can win, because but, nobody else has succeeded in doing that. Yeah, I mean, it was that really exciting tight finish against the Northern Diamonds yesterday, wasn't it? Um, and, um, yeah, it was so... And Scrivens was not on the crease. She'd been, she'd been long out. So... Um, it's interesting because um, at the other end of the spectrum, Northern Diamonds have not had a particularly great season. Um, following up, actually, yeah, having been reigning champions, um, having beaten Vipers in the final at Lords last year, they've actually struggled a bit and have finished at kind of the, in the bottom end of the table. Um, now they're almost exactly the same team that they were last year, but with one big exception, Lindsay Smith has moved from the Diamonds to the Vipers, back to her Is original way. the balance back towards well, the Vipers, right? I think it's really interesting because it is one of those where when it's the kind of transfer season and they're announcing player moves, um, you hear that Lindsay Smith is going, you think, oh, that's interesting, that's fair enough. Um, but you don't think, oh, what a disaster for the Northern Diamonds. But actually it feels like that's she's been a really important um, part of the Vipers' success this season, both with bat, with ball, in the field, she's been really good. Um, and actually, so I think she's been a big miss for the Northern Diamonds. A player that's benefited so much from professionalism as well. A player that's really worked hard on her game. She's, she, you know, I mean, she made an, a few England appearances under Mark Robinson. What sort of nearly four or five years ago now, isn't it? Yeah. It's quite a time ago. Yeah. Um, but you know, she's she's kind of gone back from England and into the regional setup and become a, a a model regional pro. She works really hard. You know, she works really hard on her fitness. Mm. She's improved every part of her game. She's improved her fielding. You know, her bowling continues to evolve. She, as you say, she's been important with the bat. And yeah. Good. Okay. <laughs> Shall we finish up by just talking briefly about England v Sri Lanka? Yeah, there's been some England matches this week. Wow. <laughs> they have, that. I know. So we've had, um, since we last recorded, we've had the um, rain-affected match at Northampton um, in which, uh, well, England almost bowled out Sri Lanka and then um, couldn't quite finish it up because of the rain and then they never got back on. So that one went, will go down as a washout. But the third match at Leicester, of course, England were absolutely dominant. Um, we thought that one was going to be a washout at one stage, but um, credit to the, the people in the crowd who actually hung around for the three-hour rain delay because you got to watch Nat Sivabrant making an amazing 100. Of course, Maya Boucher coming out and, and hitting 95. And as I wrote in the Guardian piece, what's the difference between the England team who were thrashed in the T20s and quite kind of embarrassed in the T20s with the bat versus this England team who was so dominant? Well, it's Nat Sivabrant, isn't it? And John Lewis is obviously very resistant to that narrative as the coach um, because it's not great for you when you are, uh, you know, when you're in charge of a team who feel that they only play well when there's one particular player in the eleven because she's not going to be able to play every game. It's possible she might get injured. Sometimes she's going to have to have a rest. But in this instance, it's kind of inescapable that when Nat Sivabrant is in the team, she makes the other players play better. And that Maya Boucher innings is a great example of that. It's very sad that she didn't get that 100, um, but getting 95 in 65 balls or whatever it was, a great innings and a massive contrast with how she'd played in the yeah, T20s. Yeah, probably the best she's ever played. Yeah. You know, and I've been watching her since she was 14. And, you know, when she was playing for Middlesex, when she made her first, well, I think I saw her very first game for Middlesex 
Um, so I've been watching her for a long time. That's the best she's ever played. Yeah, And an international. Yeah. You know. And it was because Nat was talking to her and Nat was patting her on the shoulder. They were having conversations. It was that partnership between them. I, I genuinely think that Nat Silverbrandt's kind of calmness rubs off on other people. Yeah, that part that part of the leadership thing she does really well, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... Um, but you but think th that you think yeah. that the England bowling is been I think quite the England important. bowling was actually re the really key, the key to the whole series. Mm. And I understand where you're coming from there, Raph, but actually, if, if you take out Nat Silverbrandt, just let... Go to the go to the scorebook. Go do it. Do it right now. Go to the scorebook. Cross out Matt Sivers runs, and then re-add up the total. England still win that match, and they win that match yeah, very because for th and, and the other two matches, but in all three matches they bowled the Sri Lankans out incredibly cheaply. I mean, Sri Lankans the most amazing, one hundred and sixteen. Um, so the bowling was where the Sri Lankans really had no answer. They had no answers really to Lauren Filer. By, by the third ODI, I did feel like the coaches had potentially worked out Lauren Filer, and they told the players how to approach it. They were like, okay, look, you can mostly leave it and wait for the slightly wider ball and then just bash it. Um, and I still think that's potentially a problem for Filer down the line. But while the coaches had worked her out, the players still had no answer for her place. And when it comes in, back into the body, when it comes close to you, they were just going, oh, and then getting an edge and being being caught. No answer for and but Sarah Glenn and Charlie Dean were both brilliant as well. Yeah, they were. Um, and that's that's there's a significant problem for England going yeah. forward here because when Eccleston comes back, they're going to play three spinners because really you were looking at you know, how do you drop Sarah Glenn after those performances where she was landing the ball on a ninepence? How do you, how you drop, drop Charlie, Charlie Dean? Dean? Oh, she's, taking, she's the only English spinner in a generation that's actually turning the ball. Yeah, and she got Chamari out twice, she's, which is the key to the whole win. She's she's been so consistent and she's she's a sort of aggressive wicket taking spinner that doesn't give away a pile of runs. And that's that's so important as well. And then Sophie Eccleston, obviously, Sophie Eccleston walked straight back into the side. So yeah, do you think they wind up playing three spinners, Raph? Well, I think it will depend on um, where they play. Um, and certainly, this was something that John Lewis talked about in the press conference after the Leicester match. He said it is it's been really difficult this summer actually leaving Charlie Dean out um, because we, I know that she's a really great bowler and I know what she can do. And I think she's you know one of the best off spinners in the world. Um, but actually, I've just had kind of haven't managed to find space for her in the team. But I think, he said, I think she'll be really important when we go to India in December or whenever it is they're going. I don't know that the dates for that have actually been announced. So he is conscious of this dilemma and it's kind of similar to the dilemma that Mark Robinson actually had um, between, in the 2017 World Cup um, with uh, Danny Hazel and Laura Marsh, isn't it? Yeah, no, it was yeah, it was the uh, it was like you know we've we've got too many really good spinners yeah. and we which which one of these do we pick? So they were kind of interchangeably in and out of the team, and I can't even remember who which of them it was ended up playing in the final. But one of them started the tournament and the other one finished the tournament. Obviously, they both get World Cup winners medals, but it's a bit unfortunate to be the one that isn't in the eleven for the final. Um, but yeah, it was a similar kind of dilemma. But you know, it goes down as a nice problem to have, doesn't it? Ultimately, absolutely. Now, Sid. I'm sorry, but we can't finish this week's podcast without talking about Bessie because she did make her England debut this week at Leicester in the ODI. You've been calling for it for a long time. You've been a big supporter of hers. How pleased are you to finally see her get that England cap? Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? I mean, um, I think that we, we never quite asked whether um, she would have been in the eleven if Heather Knight hadn't, hadn't played. It That's did true. look like she probably would have done because her mother and brother were there. To, to, and they, they brought them into the huddle when she got yeah. her cap, as they often do when the family's there. So that suggests that she'd had a heads up before, because Heather Knight didn't pull out, I mean, in case you guys hadn't, didn't know, she didn't, Heather Knight didn't pull out until like almost literally the last minute. It was yeah. like, 
Um, she was she was vomiting in the John toilet her, and saying to John Lewis, "Oh, I think I might, I think I might not be able to play, but I'm going to try." And he was like, "No, Heather, you need to go back to the hotel and rest." So it was literally, you know, only minutes before the yeah. toss that that she pulled out. But anyway, regardless, um, a fantastic moment for Bess Heath, and she came in and she, you know, she gave it a bash. Um, she, there's still a lot of work to do. Beth Heath, Beth Heath is very much a work in progress, and England do need to, you know, they need, what I think England need to do probably is pull her into some part of the England squad and get her some serious specialist wicket-keeping. You know, they need to find the best wicket-keeping coach in the world, um, probably, if they can, persuade Sarah Taylor to do it and go, look, Bess Heath is, you know, for the next year, going to spend two days a week at Loughborough working with Sarah Taylor, say, and, you know, we're going to turn Bess Heath into... Because how do you follow, you know, Sarah Taylor and Amy Jones? Yeah. You know, well, Amy Jones is the best wicket-keeper in the world at the moment. Why is Amy Jones the best wicket keeper in the world? Well, if you ask Amy Jones, it's partly because she she's learned, the, it she from learned Sarah an Taylor. awful lot from Sarah Taylor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, can we find a way of continuing that? And then so that when Bess Heath is ready to take the gloves, and she's obviously, you know, she, she can definitely come in and do some damage with the bat, but what we really need longer term mm. is to ensure she's ready with the gloves. The way you need to do that is to get that wicket keeping coaching and, you know, make a start on that and be kind of preemptive. No, I think you're right, actually, because I think they've probably been reluctant to do that because they hadn't specifically earmarked her as the next successor. But I think based on this series, she now is the wicketkeeper in waiting, isn't she? And so therefore they can afford to invest serious time and effort and energy into bringing her wicketkeeping up to scratch with where her batting is. Yeah. So, you know, play what it takes. Whatever Sarah Taylor says she wants. <laughs> give it to it, her. Give it to her. She's earned it. And um, get her up to Loughborough two days a week with Bess Heath and make her really work. Great. Okay. Let's see whether they do that, Sid. Um, we've been talking for nearly half an hour. Thank you very much for tuning in. It's been a longer episode than usual. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you in a week's time where we will be at the final of the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy. Bye for now. Bye.